0: Mm-hmm. 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 Paul, is that you? Oh, hey. how are you doing? Okay, all right. I'm fine, Kerry. Nice Paul. to meet you. Nice to meet you, Paul. Nice to meet you. I pass by this building a lot, and okay. um, I, I know a little bit about it, mostly all related to the illegitimate. with this. Mm-hmm. Detroit, right, but not too much about the history of this building, so yeah, Carrie yeah. Jr. II here, and right now I'm sitting out in the Cass Corridor neighborhood of Detroit with freelance writer and author Paul Vachon. What would this area look like?
1: This area was known as Cass Park. The park that you see over there today mm-hmm. um, was there at the time, but lining or, or I should say surrounding the park were mostly um, large upscale homes, Masonic Temple had not yet been built. Ah. Uh, probably none of these. Um, this is probably the oldest building in in, mm. in the area.
0: Mm. We've got a bit of a different episode for you today. One with a story in question that date back to 1905.
1: I don't think any of these other buildings existed at the time. Uh, but it was a very... Um, Kind of a genteel type of um, neighborhood, um, quiet I'm sure, uh, except for maybe the, the, the hoof claps of uh, horses and so forth. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a quiet, but very upscale type of, of neighborhood.
0: Or so they thought.
1: This one in particular, because I do remember reading some years ago about the unsolved murder that took place in the cafeteria of this building.
0: This is the story of a century-old Detroit-based crime mystery, and this is On The Line. So Paul Vachon met with us at the scene of the crime this week, the Alhambra Flats at 100 Temple in the lower part of the Cass Corridor. If you've driven through the area, you'll probably recognize it. It's boarded up, but it's painted a true red on its first two levels and tan on the higher ones. It's just a block away from Little Caesars Arena, and it's sort of set in between Temple Bar and Wayne State's Illich School of Business, and that's part of why Paul took interest in it. He's been in Detroit his whole life and has long been into historic preservation. Meanwhile, the building is owned by the Illich family and is supposed to be a part of their district detroit neighborhood transformation project
1: because of the proximity of this today to the whole district detroit project and because of its its history I thought it'd be a great story to tell
0: it's definitely a unique building just from the look of it it has arches and square windows rounded corners and hard straight lines
1: the building is built in what's called the um romanesque style, or sometimes uh, it's more specifically referred to as Romanesque, Richardsonian style. Um, This building was built in the Mm mid-1890s, and at that time, apartment living for well-to-do people was just becoming more socially acceptable. Prior to that, they always lived in just single family homes. Okay. Uh, but this was one of the first apartment buildings uh, to uh, come onto the scene, which would feature spacious upscale apartments. But this was one of the first upscale apartment buildings.
0: He lived in Ohio, but even Harvey Firestone of Firestone Tire fame owned a unit.
1: And then the cafe, as I, want, I should not be calling it, was on the top floor. And that was for the um, exclusive use of um, building residents.
0: And that's going to become relevant here on January nineteenth, nineteen o five. After we left the site, Paul told us more.
1: Regular meals were made there uh, for the residents as a as a luxury, you might say, for the the, the people that lived there. And uh, one of the things that was um, included in a particular meal, or perhaps on an ongoing basis, were these these baked muffins, home baked muffins. In 1905 uh, there was an incident where several of the residents of the building suddenly got violently ill and they had all eaten at the cafe and afterwards it was determined that the people that got ill had consumed or ingested high levels of arsenic Mm -hmm. and a police investigation ensued and ultimately focused in on some muffins that had been served at the cafe that were spiked with with arsenic as it turned out um, the police investigation determined that these muffins were the source of the arsenic that poisoned some of the residents
0: it's been said that two people died but we'll get into that a little later numerous residents got sick
1: the high level of arsenic in their system caused them to vomit out what they had in, what they had swallowed, and when they vomited, that took the arsenic with it, and indirectly, that may have saved their lives. Hmm. Uh, and um, uh, weakness. It was a lot of flu-like symptoms. Basically, it was um, disorientation, symptoms of that nature.
0: I imagine that's something you specifically deliberately have to place
1: it can be placed in, as was the case here, in the powder, or it could be sprinkled or whatever in, you know, a finished product.
0: Quick side story. So I know we're talking about the case, but just um – Back in high school, um, when I was at U of D, we did a, uh, the play Arsenic and Old Lace. And I had mm-hmm. to play um, the older gentleman who comes in at the end and gets poisoned. I don't know what it, like, as what you said, you said there was nausea, there's, there's uh, flu-like symptoms. <laughs> but mm-hmm. when I played this character and was poisoned, uh, the dramatic response for me was to touch my chest and fall over as if I had a mm-hmm. heart attack and fall. Mm-hmm. Dramatic for the play, the conclusion. Right. But I don't, it doesn't sound like that's the actual way that people uh, respond when they get arsenic.
1: I don't think so. Yeah,
0: okay. Yeah, I, I had a feeling that was probably uh, just me being uh, fun as a 16, 17-year-old. Like, let's make this <laughs> ending so dramatic. Um, but yeah, so so let's get back to the case.
1: The um, initial investigation in the kitchen, uh, the health examiners examined some of the items that were in the kitchen, particularly um, uh, milk that was used there and um, ice and and so forth, and those were all ruled out as the source. But then the baking powder was examined, and the baking powder was determined to be the actual source of the arsenic. Of course, the, ar- the baking powder was used to prepare the biscuits. And after looking at several different uh, possible suspects, the police focused in on a, a young woman by the name of Rose Barron who had originally worked in the kitchen, but then had been demoted subsequently to the role of, um, of what we would today call a janitor. But at the time, uh, the term scrub woman was used. And she nonetheless still had access to the kitchen.
0: So it's part of the Detroit Free Press motto that we've been on guard since 1831. And part of what that means is that we reported on the Alhambra poisoning case back when it happened. Producer Darcy Moran dug into our archives and found that we actually spoke with Rose Baron while she was sitting at police headquarters exactly one week after the poison muffins were served. So what did she say? What did she have to say to them? Mm.
2: So what she ended up saying is that, first of all, she was born in Germany, but she had come to the U.S. when she was 12, and she had received some education at St. Mary's School. She had taken a convent um, class in Milwaukee, I guess, What was kind of interesting is that she ends up saying that she has often expressed a desire to study medicine, which, of course, I think they include as some sort of intrigue for poison and medicine being involved in this case. (laughs) Um, Then she kind of goes more into the specifics of what happened. And she says, quote, I know nothing whatever about the cause of the sickness of these people. I can tell you nothing that will throw any light upon the matter. But then she says the day after everyone got sick, she actually was at the building at the request of who I believe is the landlady and that she had half a cup of coffee and got sick herself.
0: They believe she was the culprit of the arsenic poisoning.
1: Yes. yeah, And and one of the reasons that she was suspected was because in the years before she had taken a job at the building... um, people who had consumed meals that she had prepared sometimes died in mysterious circumstances
0: so what what did the archives show about her history
2: so police and in particular they keep bringing up this kind of it seems like a famed detective a detroit detective named eli baker um but they would really hone in on this history of strange illnesses all the way back to her youth they say it was 18 years before she was a young woman uh this is b- before uh she became baron when she was married to michael baron uh her name was rosa barkovsky if i'm pronouncing that right And so then there is this specific incident when she apparently, this family comes forward to say she worked for the family and they, uh, you know, would leave their child with her. And so they told their child, a girl, uh, you know, make sure you wait up for us to come home before you go to bed. And this is what they tell police. This is pre-trial and everything. They come out and Mm -hmm. say this and they say, you know, so we told our daughter that, And very strangely, one time we came home and the child was already asleep. And the next morning, this child is getting scolded because she she didn't do what she was told. And they said, you know, don't don't do that. Why did you do that? And the child says, why, Mama, I didn't go to bed.
0: She last remembered Rose showing her the stitches of a handkerchief. And chloroform was later found under Rose's mattress, they said. And it wasn't just the girl. Police looked into illnesses at the World Fair near where she'd worked in St. Louis. And then there were the deaths.
1: One of whom was her Mm father-in-law. And in the case of his death, there was um, uh, a um, death benefit from an insurance policy that was at play, which conceivably could have been a motivating factor. Mm -hmm. I believe his body was exhumed.
0: It was one of several bodies that were dug up for examination. Prosecutors and attorneys would fight over whether inflammation in his stomach was from arsenic consumed after he visited Barron in Detroit from Windsor. They would also look at the body of a woman she took care of in Howell, but didn't find anything.
2: They also exhumed the body of a baby from Woodmere Cemetery. Um, and the baby had gotten ill and died as she cared for its family. So, so she was involved with a number of different families over the years. And this was an 18 month old named Melville Clayton and the Clayton baby's death, uh, was raised at trial. Uh, and it was along with these other accusations of families she'd come across over the years that didn't involve deaths. Those included, you know, uh, having sickening a family with bread, and then another, very specifically, they say she stirred the turkey dressing and then everyone got sick.
1: That was one of the reasons why Ms. Barron was suspected, because, because of some of the events that had occurred in her past.
0: We'll be right back. My name
1: is Dave Boucher, and I'm a government and politics reporter for the Detroit Free Press. In the past year, we've brought you the impact of the 2020 general election and debunked mountains of misinformation. All the while, we continue to delve into the policies and politics driving the fight against COVID-19. There's never been a more critical time to produce reliable information while holding the powerful accountable, but we can't do that alone. By subscribing to the Free Press, you're supporting quality local journalism that creates a stronger community for everyone. And it's never been easier to join. For just one dollar, you'll get six months of full digital access to all of my work, along with excellent coverage on autos, sports, and additional topics chronicled by my wonderful colleagues here at the Detroit Free Press. To learn more, head to Freep.com slash special offer. Thank you.
0: We're back. And investigators identified Rose Barron, a former cafe employee at the Alhambra building, as a suspect in the case. We resume the story at her trial. The Free Press reported that the courthouse was packed, particularly with women. The famed legal couple, the Abbott's, were defending her, and Mary Abbott had recently been tossed by the Supreme Court for her role as the state's first county prosecuting attorney, simply because she was a woman.
1: The Defense that was put forward by her attorney was that the arsenic that made its way into the biscuits eventually really didn't come from that baking powder. They disputed that, and that the lead-lined pipes of the plumbing system transmitted the arsenic into the water that was used, and that that was the source of the was the source of the arsenic. So there was disagreement as to that.
0: The trial took several weeks and was full of drama the lawyers were snapping at each other jurors got sick
1: there was one traumatic incident during the trial when at one point a gentleman who was one of the jurors stood up in the middle of the court and clenched his chest and he goes oh my god i've been poisoned and then he fell to the floor it's like something out of a movie
0: that sounds similar to what I was doing back in theater. I just kind of, you know, clutched the chest, fell down, and, and you said was, that he just fainted. That was that was it.
1: Uh, yes, that, that's all it was. Yeah.
0: Was that a real faint?
1: Uh, yeah, it was. Um, oh, okay, but um, it wasn't staged. But uh, but that's all it was. it was.
0: Oh, okay, interesting. That's dramatic. That is. And after that, dramatic. the
1: trial continued. So.
0: Aside from her history, what other arguments did the prosecution make?
1: well, that she had access to the kitchen and that uh, uh, there were no other viable suspects either. So it was a matter of uh, elimination. Now, uh, of course, it was circumstantial. uh, But in the closing argument, the prosecutor said that uh, circumstantial evidence is uh, sometimes the best of evidence. Um, uh, He said that facts being what they are, you can't disagree with facts, is what he's saying. And um, they hold the truth. So there wasn't any actual physical conclusive proof. uh, But there was, as I said, just the circumstantial evidence.
2: The closing arguments were pretty impassioned. Uh, Reports throughout the trial describe Rose Barron's demeanor as very stoic and unemotional. And we get to the closing arguments and she's described as weeping as her attorney, Mr. Abbott, is pleading for jurors to let her return to her husband. And there was actually quite a bit written about the husband, Michael Barron, and his devotion to stand by her and wait in the hallways and people, you know, feeling so sorry for him. Um, and, And so this is the moment where they finally put some emotion with her and, and talk about how emotional she is being asked to be released. Conversely, the prosecutor, Frank Bumps, not surprisingly, had a different approach. And obviously, they were saying that the motive was, you know, this anger over uh, being demoted. But what he says is, quote, if you should ask me for a further motive, I would say God only knows. You all know that there are kleptomaniacs, dipsomaniacs, and also people who poison for pure deviltry, persons with a morbid mind that find relief in cruelty.
0: The jurors were split. A mistrial was declared. What was the makeup of the the vote?
1: I believe it was seven for conviction and five for acquittal.
0: Seven for conviction and five for acquittal. Okay. Okay.
1: And it's important to remember then, too, the juries back then were all male. Uh, Women were not yet allowed to vote, and so therefore were not allowed to serve on juries, too, so
0: even though the defendant at the time was a woman.
1: Was a woman, yeah.
0: The prosecutor eventually just didn't bring the case to trial again. One witness was ill, and one relocated to London. But Rose Barron stayed under scrutiny.
2: So one thing that's important to keep in mind is when this mistrial happened, she's not actually immediately freed. Because of Mm. the opportunity for retrial, she's still in custody until somebody agrees to postpone for her. So... A woman steps up says she'll do that rose baron is said to have kissed this woman all over with excitement after finally getting released so just a few months later very strangely the same woman who helped bail her out and that woman's family say they also fell ill after eating some of rose's coffee cake so then that coffee cake, as it was reported, was being tested for arsenic. It's not said what the results were. I didn't see any reporting saying it was or wasn't. Uh, it kind of makes me think that, one, I'm not seeing everything, or two, that they didn't find arsenic and um, it all was fine. Uh, you know, at a later point, they, news comes back around after they find out three husbands of three boarders at her house disappeared and... Uh, The men actually eventually came back, but there's kind of this, you know, odd quote that she says in the interim. She says, quote, there seems to be no explanation. I didn't give them any cake or muffins. And she said this apparently with a smile.
0: Paul tells us Rose died about two years after the trial from terminal cancer. What's interesting is our archives from the time frame mainly talk about the deaths that occurred prior to the Alhambra poisoning, but later reports indicate two people died in the poisoning. And the Alhambra often makes the list for haunted places in Detroit. Would you consider this one of those situations where it might be a a haunted building? i 'm speaking only from my own
1: personal perspective, yeah. no because I don't believe in it <laughs> I don't believe in those things okay. the paranormal some people do uh-huh. and uh, typically where stories like that are attached to a particular place or something an unsolved murder or even assault or any kind of murder that took place in a in, in a given location or whatever is one of the one of the angles that's used to link it to supposed murder but not necessarily but um but uh, as i said i I personally i don't believe in those things mm-hmm. so you're asking the wrong person when it comes to that you no problem say. yeah
0: the windows were boarded up but i can report i didn't see any ghosts still the building's got a bit of a particular feel to it at least for now maybe it's because it hasn't been occupied for a while mm-hmm. but i it gives a slight spooky vibes what is this building supposed to be? Re- it's uh, re- yeah. it's supposed
1: no. to be re- uh, restored and, and returned to apartments. Oh,
0: apartments. Okay, now, right now a hotel.
1: this building was only abandoned as recently as the 70s, mm-hmm. from what my research indicates. What happened with a lot of these more upscale older apartment buildings is as time went on, apartments were subdivided because people couldn't afford their higher rents. And uh, that in all likelihood happened to this building too. Now, um, how much it happened, and if it was ever reverted back, and then most importantly, what the eventual plans would be for its future, uh, as to the size of the units, is all unknown to me. Um, but I would think they would be decently sized apartments eventually. You know, maybe they it would be uh, resemble the original configuration. Hmm. It'd be interesting to see. I'd that like would to be see interesting that. Interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. All right. Well, Paul, thank you for talking with me today mm-hmm. uh, and okay. for, for spending this time yeah, out pleasure. here. I appreciate okay. you taking the trip to, to just look at mm-hmm. this building. And, I mean, this is really beautiful architecture, to be yeah, honest. It is. I just really like the, the shape of the building. And mm-hmm. and I, I've I've seen it so many, so often. I think I take a bike ride around here sometimes. Uh-huh. And I pass by and I'm like, oh, I can't wait till this is up and, up and We want to make sure we take the time to say thank you to Paul Vachon for sharing this story with the Free Press. And if you want to read about arsenic-laced muffins and history about the Alhambra, head over to Freep.com. This episode was produced by me and Darcy Moran with help from Tad Davis. Anjanette Delgado and Marianne Strimmon are our executive producers, and Peter Batia is our editor. The music for the show is called Fort Trumbull and was produced by DJ Lostboy. Thanks for listening. Please like the show, leave a rating and share the episode. Uh, It really makes a difference. All right. See you next week.